welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'll be your guest interviewer today. My name is Charles Bush. I'm the executive director of Redwood Coast Senior Center in Fort Bragg, a lifelong philosopher. And now I want to introduce our guest, none other than your regular host, Dr. Richard Miller. Good morning, Hi, Dr. Charles. Miller. It's nice to see you in the studio this morning. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Listen, before we jump into uh, to the interview, um, do you have a little news? Normally, you do a little news and kind of catch us up on what's going on out there in the world of mind, consciousness, body, health, and politics. Yes, I what's do. What's up this week? News and notes in psychology and medicine. Well, carbon monoxide is damaging, and it's been found to be damaging to the heart rhythm. Carbon monoxide, yes. Where does it come from? It comes from automobiles. It comes from faulty boilers. It comes from cigarettes, but mostly from car, a great deal from car exhausts. Those who are fortunate enough to live near coastal areas where the air is coming in off the ocean, where there are plenty of trees, have uh, good air and less carbon monoxide. Those living in cities, those who ride around on bicycles in traffic, as I do, those who ride motorcycles are much more prone to be inhaling this carbon monoxide. In addition, those of you who have wood-burning stoves, there's a carbon monoxide buildup. It comes from the creosote, a tar-like substance that can block the flow of smoke and cause chimney fires and carbon monoxide poisoning. So those of you who have those uh, wood-burning stoves want to make sure that you get chimney cleaning on a regular basis. But again, carbon monoxide can cause arrhythmia, and you want to get as much fresh air as you can. Sounds like, uh, of course, I mean, who's going to say no to that? But it's something for us to just be aware of. What else? Many of us nowadays go for a regular physical examination, and we have our blood pressure tested. People who have borderline blood pressure, meaning it's on the border of high, are sometimes getting medicated for high blood pressure when they shouldn't be medicated. Of course, the whole country's on a medication kick right now. Uh, perhaps not so many of our listeners, but the country's on a medication kick. The, the, the story here is that there are many factors that can increase your blood pressure while your t blood pressure is being tested, such as crossing your legs, sitting with your back unsupported, letting your arm hang too low. These things can cause your blood pressure to be just elevated enough that your doctor may then want to prescribe uh, blood pressure medicine. Uh, so what else can happen? There's something called the white coat effect. Many people have elevated blood pressure when they're in their doctor's office because they're nervous about having their blood pressure taken. So what can you do about it? Well, for one thing, you want to have your blood pressure taken at least twice. In fact, my doctor, uh, Dr. Sandy Brown, uh, here in Fort Bragg, California, has a machine that he sets after he puts the cuff on me. He then leaves the room, pushes a button, and the machine takes my blood pressure three separate times. Now, that's an ultimate way to do it, and that's a real good way to do it. But otherwise, you want to have your blood pressure taken at least twice, because five or ten points could make the difference between your doctor 
uh, prescribing a medication for you and not, and certainly you don't want to be taking um, uh, a high blood, pre blood pressure medication, or any medication for that matter, uh, if, if it's not uh, needed. Exercise, of course, is finally coming into its own. We're getting studies coming from far and wide about the benefits of exercise. Some people say, well, duh, well, of course. But it's not such an of course because the percentage of us who exercise regularly uh, is still not that high, and there's a long way to go until we're all on the program. Here's a study that says just 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, uh, the people in the study lived who did exercise uh, 15 minutes a day, lived three years longer on the average than those who exercise less. So if three years more of life means something to you, some people might say, well, I don't care about three years at the end of my life. You know, what I care about is right now, and I'd rather have the 15 minutes time. You're welcome to take that approach, of course. But for those of you who for 15, uh, three more years means something, it's just 15 minutes a day. Furthermore, an additional 15 minutes, in other words, if you do 30 minutes, cut the risk of dying over eight years by 4%. That doesn't sound very much. But when you put the two things together, three more years plus additional percentage, you know, it uh, sort of points in the direction of uh, doing a little exercise. And it's not calling for a great deal, but it's doing a, a little bit, certainly 15, 20 minutes a day does not sound, you know, over the top by any means. Um, alcohol. Alcohol. Moderate alcohol intake is defined as no more than two drinks a day for a man and one for a woman. Why the difference? Well, women end up with a higher blood level of alcohol and become more impaired than men with the same amount of alcohol. Why is that? Well, for one thing, women tend to be smaller and have proportionately less body water and more fat than men the same size. In other words, you have two people exact same size. The women have, have less body water and more fat, and alcohol is diluted in body water and not absorbed in the fat. And so with the women having less body water, the same amount of alcohol is gonna have more of an effect. The stomach enzyme that breaks down alcohol before it reaches the bloodstream happens to be also less active in women. This allows more alcohol to enter the blood. Therefore, bottom line, women are more likely to develop damage to the liver, heart, muscle, and brain at lower levels of alcohol intake. Alcohol increases the, rate, the risk, by the way, of breast cancer, and higher intakes can weaken bone, known as osteoporosis, or the forerunner of that, osteopenia. Keep in mind, older women face a double alcohol whammy since older bodies don't process alcohol as well. It's a warning, folks, and it's a particular warning to women, and it's a particular warning to older women regarding alcohol. Doesn't sound too new, does it? Well, it's new enough. It's something to be aware of. Last but not least for today's news and notes, many of you out there have allergies and you take allergy medicines, some you take that are over-the-counter. There are warnings about the over-the-counter medications for allergies because of side effects that are unknown. You're always better off talking to your physician or going to a clinic to discuss your allergy. The warning that's coming over the pike right now comes from Public Citizen, edited by Sidney Wolf, prominent physician, 
has developed a lifelong reputation for bringing good news, I mean, not good news, but authoritative news to the public. He's saying here that Claritin, those of you who have been taking Claritin, need to be aware that the company Merck that produces Claritin has now come out with a new product called Clarinex, and they're going to be pushing Clarinex because the, the patent on Claritin has expired. So you're going to be able to buy generic Claritin for a much lower price. However, Merck is going to be pushing Clarinex as if it's better than Claritin. According to Sidney Wolf and Public Citizen, it's not any better than Claritin whatsoever. It's just going to cost you a lot more money. Got it? Stay with your Claritin. Don't come in for this new Clarinex, save the bucks. So much for news and notes in psychology and medicine. Now on to our host for the day, Charles Bush. Dr. Miller, I think most of you out there in, uh, in Radioland know that Dr. Richard Miller is the founder and chief uh, executive officer of the internationally acclaimed Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. Dr. Miller, you know, integrated his techniques of humanistic psychology and psychophysical fitness training with a social model of rehabilitation, quite a breakthrough. And during the 80s, he helped detoxify, believe this or not, over 1,500 people at Wilbur Hot Springs. Not one of these people was medicated or hospitalized during their residential treatment. Dr. Miller believes that the professionally designed Wilbur ambiance and pristine environment combined with the therapeutic qualities of the mineral hot springs were, sig were a significant adjunct and really to some extent responsible for that 86% two-year success rate. Absolutely unheard of anywhere um, in the psychological service industry. Um, Richard, extraordinary results for what I think most people would accept is the one of the most difficult addictions to uh, to get back on top of. How in the world did you get inspired, and what's going on now? Uh, how how far have you taken your approach? Well, the inspiration actually the story began with a, a series of events that happened uh, in my life. Uh, one was I got a call uh, from a person who had become a friend of mine uh, telling me uh, that his young wife, and they were both young, they were in their, in their late 20s, that his wife had died and they did an autopsy and found that she died from an overdose of cocaine. Uh, that was a rare thing in those days. In fact, it's still relatively rare, but it was quite rare and it was shaking to me because at the time, uh, cocaine was rampant. It was on the cover of Time magazine in a martini glass. It was considered the upper middle class drug of choice. Uh, we were in one of those resurgent patterns of use of cocaine. Cocaine has come and gone about every 20 or 30 years. It comes and goes. Um, going way back to Sigmund Freud, who at one point thought that uh, cocaine was going to be, you know, the greatest thing since, I don't know, chopped liver perhaps, but yeah. he even sent some cocaine. Freud sent some cocaine to his fiancée and told her that it would be a wonderful thing for her to take. But Freud and his colleagues discovered the, quote, side effects 
effects. Of course, as we know, the side effects don't really happen on your side. They happen to your whole system. <laughs> every, every piece of you feels it. And, and they discovered it. But So it went out of vogue. But then it came back in in the 20s, during the roaring 20s, and then it went out again. Then it came back in. It's about on a 20 or 30-year cycle. Each generation forgets what the generation before learned is what happens here. And then they get back into it. So here this woman dies, and I'm scratching my head. How could she die from cocaine? And I start to do a little research. Then I get a call from a from uh, from a uh, uh, Olympic skiing uh, a fellow uh, whose wife is about to be put in a mental hospital for psychoses, and he hears through a colleague, a medical colleague of mine, that I'm interested in the, in, in psychoses and treating them. And he calls me on the phone, and, and I interview his wife and, and uh, start treating her, and I discover that she's been using heavy amounts of cocaine, and I take her off the cocaine, and the psychosis goes away. She had cocaine psychosis. So that happened, you know, at these two events. And, and then a, another one with someone getting involved here in, locally on the coast who told me that every time he drinks uh, uh, two, two Bloody Marys, not one, but two Bloody Marys, and if he has a beer after the two Bloody Marys, he starts looking for cocaine, and he goes wild looking for cocaine. And so out of that came my interest in, in, in treating, um, in treating uh, cocaine, and the cocaine treatment then developed into, you can't treat cocaine without treating alcohol, marijuana, uh, heroin, and methamphetamine because they're all together. So that was the beginning of it. You know, it sort of came at me that way. When I looked over what was going on in the field, it looked to me like people were being warehoused for chemical dependence, namely they were Of all kinds, regardless of the chemical. Regardless of the chemical, they were being warehoused. They were being put into these what's called 28-day programs and then sent to AA or, or NA or something like that. And the success rate it was below 5% nationally. And so when I started looking at what was going on, first of all, I thought 28 days, there's no disease known to mankind that you can predict the exact number of days of treatment that, that one needs. You know, you, you can be close to it, but you can't predict across a whole country that every single person needs 28 days. So I discovered there that that 28-day thing came about, uh, some kind of a deal was made between insurance companies and hospitals, right. and that's how that came about. The issue was payment, not treatment. It was payment, not treatment. Yeah. It wasn't research-based. Furthermore, what was going on in most of the programs at the time in these hospital programs was that patients were watching television, they were shooting pool, they were hanging out. And in some programs that I visited, patients were actually in the program during the day, and then at 5 o'clock they walked down the street to the local bar and they were drinking, and then they'd come back in at 7 o'clock. That was not unusual. Or, or friends were bringing alcohol, cocaine, heroin right into the hospitals and giving it to them, and they were just having a little vacation there. And, and you had already begun to evolve a treatment approach that was a total engagement with the whole person and the whole person's life. That's right. I was Completely working. the dynamic opposite of Com what you were seeing. Yeah, completely. So I designed a program that was completely, not only completely opposite, but I decided to bring the modalities that I was using in psychotherapy, in residential psychotherapy, into drug treatment. So, nutrition... I think I might have been the first in the country to really bring a serious nutrition program into the residential treatment. Not only what they ate, 
but every time one of my patients ate something, there was a little three-by-five card right next to them telling them what was in the food that they were eating, what the relationship was, what the percentage of fat, carbohydrate, and protein was in the food that they were eating. Then they would get lectures on why, and, and we called it, you know, intense fuel versus empty fuel. You know, if you have a tank that holds 20 gallons, you've got 20 gallons you can put in there. You can either put in 20 gallons of high octane, you can put in 20 gallons of water, you can put in 20 gallons of low octane. The stomach's the same way. We have a certain amount of room. We can either put in the most nutritious, high-intensity fuel possible, or we can put in a bunch of junk. So there was nutrition. Then exercise. I brought aerobic, treat, aerobic exercise into the treatment and taught the patients why, what the value was, and how it affects the emotions, not just the body, but how the exercise affects the emotions. The, the uh, drug uh, people, the people who are chemically dependent, when they got into aerobic exercise, they loved it because once the endorphins kicked, it's the inner <laughs> drug, and so they could smile just like you are when you heard that. And so we've got a little smile effect going, and, and the exercise caught on very well. Then there was a great deal of psychotherapy that I brought in. And before that, most of the drug treatment around the country, when you were in a hospital, the psychotherapy consisted of sitting in an AA meeting. Um, the other aspect that I discovered when I researched the drug treatment was that in most of the hospitals, the actual treatment is done by orderlies, the lowest level person, $8 an hour people, who are with the patients on, a 20, on, a, on an eight hour shift day to day. The actual therapist came in once in a while. You'd see them once a week for an hour or twice a week for an hour. It wasn't real treatment. It was a very unfortunate. By the way, a lot of that has changed since. This is what I discovered way back, you know, back then when I first started doing this research. Like psychotherapy in general was, was in that state. And, and so your, your work wasn't not just focused on, on uh, chemical dependence. You were literally remaking a new kind of holistic, integrated, whole life approach to healing. The to, to, the, to healing. The only way. Mind, body, life, and politics. Absolutely. There it is again. The yeah. only way, in my opinion, to, to really help a person who is chemically dependent is to help them with complete lifestyle right. change. So it has to include nutrition, it has to include exercise, it has to include personal awareness, consciousness expansion, but also in many cases it has to include vocational training because it's the whole life. It's it, the whole it, life because whole life. you could be a healthy person, you know, you could you could kick the drug that's your particular drug, but then if you don't have a job, you're sitting around the house, you're going to be open to a relapse because you, you, you don't have anything to do. So vocational training is part of it. Relationship training is part of it. For years spent, people who are 5, 10, 20, 30 years sucking up alcohol, shooting heroin, or snorting cocaine, their relationships are down the tubes. So they're in the toilet. I mean, it's, it, they're nowhere. So, so you were really saying that, that, that the disease was not the chemical dependence, that, that what was diseased was the life. There was, we didn't have a healthy life here. And one of the ways that dis, dis-ease was expressing itself was chemical dependence, a substitute for life, in essence. A total substitute for life, living in an altered, zoned-out consciousness and the person, in your words, was dis-ease. They were without ease of living. Right. And so often, what I faced with my patients 
is that as they got sober and as they started to develop a life, they would then have to deal with the wreckage, which could be, and if, so that if we weren't ready as a treatment team to help them dealing with wreckage, they would once again be exposed to relapse because wreckage could include not making payments on your home and being close to losing it. It could be not dialoguing with your wife or your husband because you're in such a zoned out state that you're living separate lives and you've got a wreckage of a marriage. It could be so distant from your children, if you have children, that they are not relating to anything but a, but a drugged-out dad or a drugged-out mom. Covering up effectiveness at work. All over the place. All over the place. And by the way, talking about this, people ask me often, uh, you know, how do you define addiction? How does one know, how does one know when they're addicted how does it and how do you differentiate it from a habit right you know what's a little amount what's a large amount and my answer has been it becomes an addiction when you continue to do the behavior whatever it is in the face of adverse consequences to yourself your family or your business again adverse consequences to yourself your family or your business. If you continue to do something in the face of those kind of adverse consequences, no matter what it is, it's an addiction, right? right? If you start scratching at your face and uh, to the point where you have adverse consequences to your face and your health, you've become addicted, you could say, to, to scratching and taking it's, substances is the same. It's sort of like the difference between a weed and a plant. Uh, they're all plants, but, but weeds have unforeseen negative consequences in terms of your garden your your body and your life being your garden so so addiction is an activity that's gotten out of control and is upsetting the integrity of your life huh that's right by the way did you use weeds because we're talking about uh, drugs oh you didn't mean that <laughs> it is inter it is interesting though that 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 uh, most substances that people become addicted to can also, in certain circumstances, have a positive application as medicine or serve, as a healing. Or serve other, pay, uh, serve yeah. other purposes, absolutely. A pistol can be used for defense. It can be used for target shooting. It could be used for murder. Heroin could be used uh, you know, for, for an, an anesthetic. It can be used to get high. It can be used to get you in trouble. Cocaine was, uh, now we use lidocaine, but it was also used to, you know, for, the, for, a per, right. for a medical purpose. And alcohol is used for a medical purpose. That's true. It's how we use them and to what extent we use them. And by the way, when I say to what extent, one of the things I found is that you can't say an amount and say this is a safe amount of particular chemicals because different amounts are safe for different people. I've had people get totally addicted to cocaine on relatively tiny amounts, but it was enough to turn their lives upside down because of their particular metabolism and their particular lifestyle. So, um, Richard, I want to interrupt for just a minute. Listeners, um, I want you to know that, that in a little bit we want to open up the phone lines to, uh, to questions. The number here is 937-5103, 937-5103. And uh, if you've got a question or a comment or something you want to add to the show here, why uh, give us a call. So anyway, you're rebuilding lives. Curing addiction means rebuilding a person's life, helping a person rebuild life. And you went at all the aspects of life. Mind, body, health, and politics again. 
trying to cover every single possibility of where relapse can make its way in. That's why I mentioned nutrition, exercise, consciousness expansion, psychotherapy, vocational training, relationship training, training in, in working with children. I mean, so many of my patients started using their drugs of choice when they were teenagers. How many of them, by the time they came in for treatment in their mid-40s or mid-50s, had 30 years of continuous use in their, in their souls, in their consciousness, 30 years. And so how many of them were in some ways arrested in their development as teenagers, were still relating? I, I remember one, one, uh, one um, uh, rock musician that I treated who started using when he was 16 years old. And, and when he was, uh, he came to me for treatment in his early, in his early 50s. And he said, he, it, it, he realized that he didn't know how to do anything except play music. Because whenever he wasn't playing music, and even when he was playing music, he was loaded he on was loaded. something. Yeah. And so we were talking about this in my office. And the next day he came in, he sat down, he had tears in his eyes. And I said, what's going on? He said, I went to the DMV with my girlfriend to get plates for my car. And as I walked out with her, she grabbed the plates out of my hand and went to put them on the car. And I realized that the reason she was doing it was she thought that I wouldn't know how to put the plate <laughs> on my own car because she'd never seen me do anything. Never seen me do anything, and that was not that was not uncommon. Yet on the other extreme, there are people who are functioning, who are running businesses, and who have many employees who are also in the same position, who are loaded a, a high percentage of the time, and just sort of getting by until someday, you know, at some point it catches up, and 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 often it, it catches up because of family or because of the law. You know, so people get in trouble with the law and then it catches up. And then, because a, an interesting aspect of chemical dependence, whether it's alcoholism or, or heroin, cocaine, is that with so many of the other diseases, afflictions, if you will, maladies that we suffer, when we have the pain, the suffering, we go for help. Right. You get a toothache, you're going to get to the dentist pretty Absolutely. quickly or somewhere, right? You get a headache, you're going to get, so you're going to get aspirin. Uh, if you have some kind of internal pain in your stomach. But that is not the case with chemical dependence. People can go decades suffering and not go in for treatment. The, the illness itself gets in the way of reaching out for help, and then you have this word that's become so famous around the world, of course, which is denial, you know, the body, the mind's way of pushing the whole event so far into the recesses that we go on, you know, looking around as if nothing is happening, and yet everything is falling apart around us. Let's, uh, Richard, let's, let's, let's absolutely personalize this. Um, I'm a person, I have a living an ordinary life. I'm, it's not wonderful, but you know, I'm, I'm hanging on, I'm doing okay. Um, and I, I notice that I'm incorporating a chemical substance, whether it's alcohol or, or coke or, or barbiturates or amphetamines or whatever. I begin to incorporate this in my life. How do I know? What, what, how do, what is it that should begin? How, what, what are the early warning signs that I'm heading down a path that may lead in the wrong direction? 
And is it important to catch it? Is it the quicker you catch it, is it easier to deal with? It's a, that, that's a great question, and it's an extremely difficult one because when you're in your early stages of doing this, whether it's starting to reach for marijuana at 3 in the afternoon or at 12 or at 10, you're doing it on a very slow basis. For, what, what, I, what I tell people is, Nobody ever started to become an alcoholic by reaching out for a fifth of Grey Goose and just downing the whole fifth, right? right? right. Or Jack Daniels. It's usually That's, a slide, it's, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's what I call the creep. It's the creep. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit on Wednesday night, a couple of beers, and then maybe, thank God it's Friday, and it's a couple of beers, you know, in teenage years or something like that. And then all of a sudden, maybe a little more on Saturday, because there's a party on Saturday, and then some this Sunday, and before you know it, it's beer every single night of the week. Or it starts out with maybe a martini one night, and then maybe a martini another night, and be, then before you know it, it's a martini every single night. And then how big is the martini, and how much is in it? And when do you have a second one? And then when do you have a second one, and maybe a a glass of wine with dinner and now you're up to three drinks a day and then maybe four and then when do you add a little maybe a glass of wine with lunch so then you have some alcohol in your system at lunch before the martini at five o'clock and the glass of wine with dinner you see it's all at the creep and the same with marijuana you know might be a little oh let's have some fun on the weekend but then maybe it's going to be a little bit during the week and then maybe another time. And there's a whole controversy about how much marijuana is, is too much and can there be such a thing as an addiction to marijuana. Uh, with heroin, nobody of it just goes out and says, I think I'll get a needle and a bunch of heroin and have right. a fun weekend, right? It doesn't happen that way. It's I'll experiment once with it or I'll try it out and then it's a little more and a little more and a little more. It's hard for us to, to realize that w when we're 17 years old and have a, a, a couple of beers a day, that 10 years from now, that could be a six-pack or two a day. We don't, we don't think that way. But when the time you get up to a six-pack or two a day, if you add up the amount of alcohol in a six-pack or two, it's enough to take care of your liver and then some. In, in a certain sense, if we go back to that, that concept of, a, of life and, and it being a garden, what happens in a certain sense is your garden, your, it's not that you just are taking more cocaine or drinking more alcohol, it's that your life begins to get weedier and weedier and weedier, meaning that you, relate, you notice that, that you have fewer good relationships in your life, that, that your work isn't challenging, that you've given up a couple hobbies, that you don't go out and... It's worse than that, Charles. You don't notice those things. Uh, That's the but problem. But they're happening anyway. They're happening, but you don't notice because that little slide as we're creeping, there comes a point. You know, it's, it's like, why does, why, why does the United States on an abstinence model, whereas Europe is on a controlled use model? Right. And the reason is that... Before you have a drink, you can tell the difference between not drinking and having a drink. Yes. But once you have one or two drinks, to tell the difference between the second and third is much more difficult than to tell the difference between zero and one. Because by the time you've had two, the two are already having the effect on your psyche, so it's easier to slip into the third. It's not that the abstinence model is a great model. It isn't. It's almost Herculean. How many people can not drink for the rest of their lives? And it's right. daunting when people think that way. My God, the rest of... That's why the, the, you know, the saying is, I won't drink today, because the most... And for some people, it has to be, I won't 
won't drink this hour. Right. Right? Because that's the most I can deal with is I won't drink right now, let alone I won't drink for the next 20 years, right? It's, it's a very difficult model. And the, the substances themselves, it's like the, so cloud us that we can't tell where we're going next. And so the question that you raised to begin with is how do we know when we're slipping into it? It's a very important question, and it's a question for all of us to ask because we're all I, – I don't believe this is genetic, by the way, this uh, of getting addicted. Right. I, I think it's something we learn that we're all susceptible to it. There's no one who isn't. In, in fact, I'm, I'm quite certain that if you give anybody – two or three drinks every single day for six or eight months, you're going to get them hooked on whatever it is or give sure. them the cocaine or the heroin. They're going to be, and they're going to want more and more and more after a while. The tolerance is going to build up. So your question again, how does one know, people listening, you know, how do I know if I'm slipping in that direction? You know, stay in touch with friends if you st- you know, and, 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 or, and your family and, be, and, and have honest conversations, very honest conversations early in your life. Uh, and teach young people to have these kind of honest conversations because you want to have the conversation of are you approaching going too far rather than the conversation of have I gone too far? Once you're having the conversation yeah. of have I gone too far, you're going to be resistant, you're going to be defensive, and you're going to be, what do you know? I'm just having fun. Sure, and and probably if I'm understanding you completely, the, the, the trick is not just to go, what am I consuming? The trick is to go, what am I dropping out of my life? How is my life graying out? How is my life narrowing down slowly? And if you see that, you know, if you no longer are doing the things that used to give you joy or bring richness or meaning into your life, and your consumption is regular and increasing, then you've got a combination which is dynamite. And most of us, hardly any of us can see what you're saying. We most often need friends. Why relationship? We need friends and family and relationship. That's why. Yeah, that's right. In terms of prognosis, uh, I mean, a person who's in a relationship has a, has a much better chance, uh, you know, of, of, a reco- of a of a faster and easier recovery than a person who's living alone. You know, my, my most difficult patients, of course, is a, is, a, is a single male living alone who deals drugs. That's a diff- That's really a difficult case, right? Because <laughs> he's right in the business. He's living alone. There's no feedback, making money from the business, and using. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, give me someone who's married, has three kids, and a responsible job, and you know, it's a different level level of prognosis. I want to mention cigarettes also. No one that I've ever met in fifty years of practice ever just woke up one day and said, "You know, I think I'll smoke a pack or two a day." Right. It doesn't happen that right. way. It's I think I'll they just, you take a puff, one puff, or one cigarette from a friend, and then it's two, and then yeah. it's three, and then you work your way up to a pack, and all of a sudden you realize you're smoking a pack a day, or maybe two packs a day, and you're looking for ways to minimize it. You know, I'm only at 10, or I'm only at 8. But keep in mind... If, if anybody listening out there has ever met anybody who just woke up, never smoked before, and said, I think today I'll get up and smoke a pack of cigarettes, please introduce me to them. I'd like to interview them and find out, you know, what, uh, how did that happen? Who are they? The same with the alcohol, you know. It arises in a social context. Again, nobody just decides. I think one day, I've never had alcohol in my life, I think I'll drink a fifth of Jack Daniels. Right. No, it's the creep. It's very steady creep. By the way, the... The entrance to good nutrition 
and to exercise and to relationships is also the creep. Nobody just jumps in one day and says, I think I'll throw away all the miserable food, all the low carbs, all the empty stuff, all the greasy stuff, and I'm just going to eat whole food and organic. That doesn't happen that way. That's also a creep. It's a, sure. you know, over time, little, little, little. Nobody goes into the gym and says, all right, I think I'll start today with an hour and a half of exercise. You right. can't. It right. doesn't work that way. You've got to get your body working towards it a few minutes. As one fellow taught me early on in my exercise training, he said, 10 minutes. Just do 10 minutes and then add. I've taken people actually who didn't exercise at all and I've asked them to start with five minutes of walking a day. This is a true story. I do it over and over again, Charles. Five minutes a day. They look at me like, I can do 15 minutes. No. Start with five. Next week, do six. The following week, do seven. At the end of the year, you'll be doing an hour. That's plenty. Make right. it so gentle you won't even notice it. You keep adding a minute a minute a day to your to your daily exercise, the difference between 17 minutes a day and then you go the next week 18 minutes a day, you'll never notice it. You won't even feel it. And before you know it, you'll be at 37 minutes, 30, using the creep in a positive way. And, and then, so, you're, then you're there. So in a sense, um, creeping into health, creeping back into total health, integrated health, um, the practitioner, the clinician, the, what you've actually done is you, you've invented a new, uh, a new role altogether. We have the concept of a personal trainer. You, you really, you, you don't cure addiction in the same sense that you cure a headache. You become a personal life teacher. You, you, when you engage with your clients, their whole life. You, you engage with their whole life and begin to move them gently down a, a, a range of new paths to bring the light back, to bring the enthusiasm back, to bring the connection back. That's right. I tell people who are chemically dependent that their dependence is an opportunity to enter a whole new arena in their life. The opportunity to enter the arena of life change. It's very yeah. exciting, yeah. it's challenging, it's difficult, but it's extremely fulfilling. It's a whole new game. That's right. And to enter it, but to enter it very gently, little tiny steps in all these areas. Talk to your wife or your husband five minutes a day. Next week, talk to them six minutes. Set an egg timer, literally. Talk to them six minutes a day. See what it's like. The following week, talk to them seven minutes a day and just add a minute until you're up to 10 or 15, 20 minutes. The, um, the data on successful couples, long-term successful marriages in this com uh, country indicates that they talk to each other on a very personal basis, 20 minutes a day. So if it takes, if you started with one minute a day, <laughs> literally, if you right. started with one little minute a day in 20 weeks, right? Five months, you'll be talking 20 minutes a day. How many of us take 20 minutes to sit with the person who's the closest person in our lives and talk intimately about what's going on inside of us? What are our fears? What are our hopes? What makes us feel good? What makes us feel bad? What I really find difficult about you? What I love about you? What is irritating about you? Whom I live with? 15, 20 minutes. 
a little tiny bit each day. And, 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 and if we don't practice, then when big issues or serious differences or life deals us uh, a hard hand, when we have to deal with those, we don't, we don't have skill to be a good partner and to work hand in hand well. I don't, mean, it's like practice. You have to practice to be a good partner. You have to practice. And each of these modalities that we're talking about is part of that practice whether it's the exercise or the nutrition or the relationship or what it is, there's an opportunity here to practice. But if we don't practice, as you're saying, there's going to be, just like with any other building, huge deferred maintenance. Sure. There's going to be deferred maintenance as a result of not attending to our nutrition. There'll be deferred maintenance from not attending to exercise. Mostly, I mean, in fact, most importantly, there'll be deferred maintenance for not attending to our relationships, not just with the person we live with, relationships with our family, and relationship with our closest friends. We will have deferred maintenance. For those of you in the building trades, you know what it's like to leave a building for 20 years. You're gonna have a great deal of deferred maintenance. The same thing is true in life. And you either, we either keep up with it and make it a fun game, make it an exciting game, make it an interesting game, make it a challenging game, make it an intriguing game, or we're going to be dealing with the deferred maintenance. And then we get stuck with what my friend Mike says, we start to get parted out. That's you know, <laughs> exactly. right, from the, from the physical deferred maintenance, we get parted out. Pieces start to fall yeah, off or, or start to break down. Speaking of deferred maintenance, by the way, I want to remind you uh, listeners out there, 937-5103, that's the open line, the open number here. If you uh, want to talk to Dr. Miller, uh, share a little experience or ask a question, you should feel free to call the station at 937 and um, we'll give you a little listen. Uh, Richard, um, when, when we talk about the kind of treatment, the engagement, basically the profound relationship that you as a psychotherapist enter into with a new client, um, the question it raises in my mind is if you are a life teacher, in essence, you become a life teacher to them, um, that means that just going to psychology school and learning therapeutic tricks is not the adequate preparation, is it? It's way deeper than that. You have to make your own life an experiment and, and constantly challenge yourself to higher and higher levels of health, I would think, in order to be a guide or a support or a therapist in this whole milieu kind of treatment. In my case, I haven't had to challenge myself in the sense <laughs> that almost everything possible that can happen to somebody I think has happened to me yeah. or I've allowed to happen to me, whether it's, you know, I've been in terrible accidents, I've had psychological issues, uh, my lifelong uh, addiction issue is food. I've weighed uh, almost 100 pounds more than I weigh right now. And so in dealing with each of these challenges, that has enhanced me, of course, and, and, and uh, given me tools, or I've taught myself and learned tools from others, from my great teachers, that I've been able to pass on. Uh, so, we're, so we seem to be getting a signal over there. Do you see that? So. Yes, hello. Hello, listener. <laughs> Hi, who am yeah. I speaking to? Um, my name is Ralph, and I've been a long-time listener, and uh, I have a question. A resource has uh, disappeared, namely the Redwood Health Center, and I understand it's prepared to reopen, and I hope it does before my own health conditions. I really benefit from a jacuzzi, and that's otherwise not 
readily available. Not available locally. Richard, uh, any comment on that? Yes. Uh, there is a great deal of benefit from uh, hot water that goes back to the Greeks. The Greeks called it balneology, interesting word, B-A-L-N-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It, it, means, it means the health benefits of sitting in uh, naturally, in those days, naturally occurring hot water. In the case of our listener, Ralph, uh, thank you for calling, uh, he's talking about, uh, uh, about man-made uh, heated water. And, and what's healthful about it? Well, if it's man-made heated water like he sits in, it's hot. Therefore, it expands the musculature. The muscles are where we feel tension. We don't feel stress and tension in our bones, and we don't feel stress and tension in our blood. We just can't. But we do feel stress and tension in our muscles. So anything we can do to stretch the muscles, such as sitting in hot water, is going to relax the system. It's going to take that stress off. I mean, just picture a rubber band. If you have a rubber band connecting two points, if that rubber band is tight and brittle and you try to move those points, you're going to snap part of that rubber band. But if that rubber band is nice and loose and pliable and you move one of the points, the rubber band's going to stretch. We're the same way. These rubber bands are the things that hold the skeleton together, right, and moves it. Otherwise, the skeleton would just fall down on the ground. So we need these muscles. Doing what he's doing finding a non-invasive way. He's not taking a pill. He's not taking, he's not smoking something or drinking something. He's applying heat to the muscles. It expands the muscles. It takes pressure off and it makes us feel better. And, and, so uh, it, it, I, and by the way, I used hot mineral. Well, as you know, in, in, in the residential part of the program that I designed, I, I immersed people in, uh, in the hot mineral springs, the medicinal water. That's different water because it has medicine dissolved in the water, which comes in through our skin transdermally uh, and supports the system. That was one of the interesting aspects of that whole project I did with those 1,500 patients, which is I never medicated one of them. That was unknown prior to that. In the hospitals, people were getting Valium and they were getting various kinds of drugs to come off their meds. I never, 1,500 people, I never medicated one of them. That was profoundly important in terms of, 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 the, uh, of the literature and adding to the literature, and we published that study. 1,500, not one of them that I had to helicopter out and bring to a hospital, even though they were using, some of the patients using massive doses, you know, a whole fifth a day, plus an eight ball of cocaine, three and a half grams every single day, no pills and no hospitalization, uh, proving to the world that it could be done in what's called social model detox. That yes, means yes. outside the expense of a hospital, outside the, exp the tremendous expense of a hospital. And, and, and the focus is on partly on stopping a behavior that's hurting you, but the important thing is it's, it's on, it's on a, a clever and intelligent and wise coaching about how to begin a whole bunch of an array of new activities, new movement in your life that begin to fill up the spaces and turn the color back on again. That's right. You have to do both things concurrently. You have to both cease the addiction. You've got to stop that hand from scratching the face. You've got to stop drinking or, or, or smoking or whatever the drug is. You have to stop that and concurrently start the process of creeping back into a healthy lifestyle. And it's, that's what makes it so challenging is that you can't leap into a healthy lifestyle any more than you don't leap into drinking a whole fifth a day the first time. You have to creep into a healthy lifestyle. But as you're creeping, since it's slow, it's easy for the drug of choice 
to sneak its way right in through some crack and bangle you into a relapse. Once you're into a relapse, the exercise stops, or the nutrition stops, or the relationship stops, or the going to work on time stops, or healthy lifestyle stop, or whatever it is, caring for yourself. Sometimes you can tell how a person's doing just by looking at the, at their, at the inside of their car. You know, right? (laughs) Because a a car, the inside of one's car can go from looking like your living room, nice and clean, to looking like a garbage dump on wheels because things start to go as we start to use these things over and over again. So as the practitioner, things start to go. You have to, you you don't, you can't, you can't approach a client with this formula that goes, oh, you're taking this, you do this, this. Every one of them becomes this creative dance where you, in essence, bring new parts of life back to life and invent creative ways to sometimes trick or coax or seduce or anything you can to get these healthy things started. Yes, each one of us. We're all the same, but we're all different. You're like a painter. We're the same. That's right. It's all painting, but each painting is different, but they're all paintings. Sounds like we have someone over here. Caller. Hi. I have a question for Dr. Miller. You bet. Um, I've been listening to him talking about the gradual... You know, one minute, add one minute a day of walking or a little bit of extra healthy food a day. And I've heard um, the opposite said, um, that it's if you, like, make big changes all at once, like, say you go to a spa for 10 days, and then you'll feel so much better that you've, you've made so many huge changes that it's actually more motivating than doing a little bit at a time. So I'm interested in kind of both of those and how they would work for people. Yes, for those who can afford to go someplace where they can make a radical change, there's no question that it's a very helpful thing to do. It's a very expensive thing to do. Most of us cannot afford to go to those places, and so we have to do it at home. And doing it at home, it's extremely difficult to make radical changes. For those, that doesn't mean it can't be done. There are those who can. It's very difficult. For example, nutritionally, if, if you've been eating junk for the last 10, 20, 30 years, and you want to make a, make a radical change in your home, literally what you want to do is go through your home and throw out everything and start fresh and start with help and what to put into those cupboards and what to put into the refrigerator. Otherwise, you've got all these things staring at you. You're going to open it up and see a bunch of stuff, and how can you not, you can help but not eat it. Uh, Also, it it, it feels like weird to throw away something that's good because you just paid for it, and now somebody's saying, so yes, it can be done at home radically by just like clearing everything out and starting again. Very difficult. Uh, Usually the creep is, 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 is just more reasonable. But again, if you can afford to go somewhere for 5, 10, 15, 20, some people can for 30 or 40 or two months, and, and radically change your lifestyle, not just your nutrition, but you become back with an exercise program and so on, yes, that's a very effective way to do it. However, there's a warning there as well, and that is no matter how good the residential program you go to, if you don't have some kind of coaching when you get back to encourage and support your continuing the program, the chances are you're going to start to slide away from it. This is a, a phenomenon that's well known. We come back from any seminar of any kind, full of that seminar and feeling good, but if we don't have a reminder experience on a regular basis, a group, friends, family, to support those changes, there's sliding that just occurs. It's part of the human condition. You want to take that? Uh, I think we have another caller, huh? Another caller yes, coming. Yes, you caller? do. 
You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, I was hoping you'd talk uh, to that other addictive drug called tobacco. <laughs> Richard, how about that? Well, tobacco, what do we have still? 30, 40 million people smoking tobacco. What goes on here? Well, to begin with, you know, you have the advertising around tobacco. A person who's using heroin doesn't have to walk down the street seeing huge billboards saying, please use heroin today. And the same is true for cocaine. But when it comes to alcohol and tobacco, people are facing huge advertising coming right at their addiction. Use more of this, use more of that. I mean, imagine alcoholics going to football games and everybody around them is drinking beer like it's going out of style and they're sitting there not drinking. It's an, it's a, it can be it's a challenging thing to do. But, you know, n nobody goes to a football game and sees everybody sitting around shooting heroin, so the heroin people don't have to deal with that. <laughs> Those like myself, you know, who are addicted to food, which means I will use food uh, until there's an adverse effect on myself, my family, or my business, we have to deal with it all the time because we can't go in an abstinence model. I can't stop eating altogether. Right. I must practice controlled use. With the cigarette folks, you've got massive advertising coming right at your addiction all the time, encouraging you to use the very thing that's killing you. Very difficult. And I can offer you a couple of quickies, by the way, that I have found to be successful with regard to al a cigarette reduction. One quickie costs you absolutely nothing to do this except a few cigarettes. Take your cigarettes, lay them out on a table, hundreds of them. Make one, one uh, the, for your first day's allotment of cigarettes exactly what you use now. Let's say you're a 20 uh, a cigarette uh, a day smoker, one pack. Your first day, one pack. Your next day, lay out 19 cigarettes. The next day, 18. The next day, 17. Right down the line until you have all these packages laid out and your last day is one and then zero. 20 days, <laughs> right down the line. It's the gentlest slope imaginable. You will not notice the nicotine uh, you know, uh, craving because you're going down. Because that reduces. You're going down so gently. You get involved in a positive strategy about you, you uh, have eight. 18 today, where should I put them? That's right. So you start engaging in a now, different way with it. Lay them all out in advance. By the way, I did the same thing one time with a heroin uh, uh, addict. I had him lay out his entire month's supply of her heroin in smaller and smaller amounts. He pasted them onto a, a calendar for me. Uh -huh. We had the calendar right there. Each day, use less and less heroin <laughs> until the end. He was out off the heroin, and that was the end of it. Yeah. So I hope that helps you with regard to the... Uh, to the cigarette, uh, that's w one good method with regard to cigarettes. It's a toughie, mostly because of the, you're being you're being sold to do the very thing that you want to not do on an ongoing basis. Um, what I, I throw, I'm going to say one more thing because there are so many people who smoke and, and they need all the help they can get in the treatment. It's such a tough one. It's such a tough one. Another one that works that I have had success with anyway is you limit yourself to one puff from any one cigarette oh very interesting very interesting thing to do so if you're at if you smoke 20 uh, cigarettes a day which is a pack of cigarettes your challenge there is just to have a puff and then put it out you want another puff you got to light up another cigarette you want another puff what's going on here is of course you, you can only have one puff from any one cigarette so if you want to have as many puffs as you ordinarily do, you might have to buy three or four packs a day. It gets, you're getting faced with the increased expense of maintaining the old habit, sure, which can be sure. disconcerting in and of itself. I like the other way better, though, going to <laughs> 19, 18, 17. We're getting a signal here, Charles. Yes, we got another caller online here. 
No, it's not a caller. He's telling us we've got two oh minutes to gosh, go. We're almost out of we're, time. We're almost Richard. out of time. So, um, to sum up, or anything in particular that we've kind of missed here today that you really want to share with our listeners um, who either themselves or have a loved one or a friend who's struggling with the weed of addiction. Yes. Um, this business of going away to uh, hospitals and residential programs and so on, which is extremely expensive, um, is, ver- is, is unnecessary in my opinion, and I proved it with my program. By the way, my residential program was five days, and we had that 86% success rate. But remember, it wasn't 86% after five days. It was 86% after five days of residential followed by a year and a half of week in and week out outpatient. Right. Right. There's no magic to detoxification. Detoxification could be done if you have a family that can take you out into the woods for a week and, put, and live in a tent. Right. Detoxification could be done on a mass scale with, with hundreds of people out on tents. But detoxification means being removed from the substance that you're addicted to, whatever it happens to be, though you can't do it with food, as I said, but that can be done with the other things. So I'm just raising a flag about the necessity of being taken away to some institution somewhere. Uh, We're getting more and more signals here, so where are we going? Okay, I think uh, we're just about uh, finished up with Mind, Body, Health, and Politics for today. My guest today was none other than Dr. Richard Miller. What a joy to have you with us today. Thank you for listening today's, to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, um, which is made possible by our staff and our engineer, Mike DeLora, and, of course, all of you out there in Radioland. Thanks for being with us again. Tune in next time to Dr. Richard Miller, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Goodbye for today. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles.